0: October 11th, 2020, October 11th, 2020, the world was still reeling from the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic in the U.S. We were in the final weeks of what really was a brutal presidential campaign. October 11th, 2020, the L.A. Lakers beat the Miami Heat in game six of the NBA finals to win the title. No Lakers fans, I guess, this morning. One, just like first service. October 11th, 2020, we were meeting outside for our worship services on Sunday morning, meeting out in the parking lot as our building underwent extensive renovations. And on that date, October 11th, 2020, we began working our way through the gospel of Luke. Now, To be fair, we've taken some time away from Luke along the way. We've spent our summers in the Psalms. We've taken a few other diversions into other short sermon series, but our mainstay has been Luke. So we return to Luke, our familiar friend this morning, and apart from a couple of weeks away from Luke this fall, Lord willing, the plan will be to finish this gospel before Christmas. However... Since we have been away from Luke for about four months now, I think it would be good to kind of circle back up and give a little bit of background, provide some context so that we are all on the same page as we begin together. Now, you might remember that the gospel of Luke was written, oddly enough, by a man named Luke who was a physician. He was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul later on and... Uh, He's writing to give us certainty about Jesus. In fact, it might be helpful. Just keep your finger in Luke chapter 22. Flip back to the left with me, back to Luke chapter 1 for a moment. Here in Luke chapter 1, the, the first verses lay out Luke's thesis or mission or purpose statement for us. In Luke chapter 1 verse that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So Luke tells us right from the beginning that he is writing to Theophilus, who was likely his financial underwriter as he traveled and researched and wrote. And he is writing to this man, Theophilus. The name Theophilus means lover of God or lover of godly wisdom. So you can see that this is a message for all of us. love God and love the things of God and he's writing so that we might have certainty what a kind mercy of our Lord to give us a book explicitly written that we might have certainty in the gospel and that's what Luke is about we could summarize perhaps Luke's mission like this Luke is writing so that we might know that Jesus is God the Son as he said who lived and died and rose from the dead. Luke is writing so that we might have gospel certainty. So we're here, as you read together a few moments ago, picking up in Luke chapter 22. There are 24 chapters in Luke, which should tell us that we're getting near the end of Jesus' time on earth. Up to this point already, Jesus has been publicly preaching and teaching for about three years now. He has healed the sick, he's raised the dead, he's called people to turn from their unbelief and to trust in him. And in fact, here in Luke chapter 22, we followed along as Jesus is in the upper room with his closest friends and closest followers, the disciples, as they have a special meal together which we call the Lord's Supper. And Luke records for us then what happens, perhaps even as they're gathered around this supper table after the meal. And those are the four verses we're going to look at together here. Verses 24 through 27. So as we make our way through, if you're taking notes, we're going to kind of look at this text under three main headings. The first we'll call a familiar dispute. A familiar dispute. The second we could call a natural pattern. And the third would be a different pattern. Mission. So a familiar dispute, a natural pattern, and a different mission. Let's begin with a familiar dispute. Look at verse 24, and when you found it, say there if you're there. All right. A dispute arose among them, among the disciples, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest familiar dispute. Who is the greatest? Now if you've been following along at all as we've made our way through the gospel of Luke or you know anything of Jesus's life and ministry and that of his disciples, you know that this is not the first time that we have seen a dispute like this among the disciples. But this may be the most unsettling of all the disputes. Now think about it for a minute. The context is Jesus' last supper with his disciples. And so he's just unpacked for them that he will die and that his body will be broken and his blood will be shed for sin. He's told them that he will die. And he's even told them that the person who will betray him is seated around the table with them. Jesus' thoughts at this point are clearly dominated by his suffering and his death and even his resurrection. But all the while, even as he recounts this to them, and shortly thereafter, what are his disciples thinking about? Like they're not asking questions about the new covenant in his blood. They're not wondering about details about this new kingdom that he's spoken of. No. They are arguing about who is the greatest. Commentator David Garland writes, "One cannot think of a more inappropriate time for the disciples to bicker about who is the greatest." Like they should have been talking about how to remain faithful to Jesus. Like how can we help spur one another on to remaining faithful in these trials and hard days that are ahead, but they're not. In fact, they're fractured apart as they're fighting with one another about who's the greatest. Now let's pause here for a moment because the temptation is to read verse 24 about their argument, who's the greatest, and immediately maybe go in our minds back to maybe a playground in elementary school arguing among your friends of who's the fastest, or who's the smartest, or who's the tallest, or who's the strongest. In fact, you know how you get some of those memories kind of etched into your mind. I don't know why this is etched into my mind, but I distinctly remember standing beside the swing set in probably second or third grade on the playground and our friends, we were arguing, you ready for it, about whose dad had read the thickest book. (laughs) I have no idea why it's it made so much sense to our third grade or second grade minds then but I remember like I've read my dad read a book this thick my dad read a book this thick my dad's read a book this thick and oddly enough it seems to me if I remember correctly that the dad who had read the thickest book was ironically the the father of the son with the longest arms right like this is the bigger 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 but the danger of reading verse 24 and thinking like that is we remove this temptation We put it out there, and we think, we would never do that. Look how childish. Look how ridiculous these disciples are. Like, I'd never do something like that. But can I submit to us this morning that we are tempted in the very same ways today? We might not vocally argue about who is the greatest But aren't we tempted to want to be with the right crowd at the party? The fun crowd? Uh, When when we go out with a group and we're seated at the table, don't we want to sit by the ones who are the easiest to talk to, or maybe the most popular ones, or the most well liked ones, or the funniest ones? Like, don't we want to be the favorite friend of our friend? Or maybe you found that you act differently depending on who you talk to. Someone that you perceive to be someone of authority or influence or esteem or respect you happen to talk a certain way to. And then you find upon reflection that you talk very differently. You're you're very much less self-aware when you're talking to someone that you perceive to be maybe less important or less authoritative than you just think about the way we spend our time maybe even here on sunday mornings or in our small groups like do we gravitate towards those that we want to like us those we want to be our friends maybe even those we're already friends with like how often do we intentionally look for those that we're unfamiliar with or those who come in alone or maybe those who might look or feel out of place. It seems to me that we fairly often, just as a general rule, seem to seek out those who make us look better or those who can do something for us. And so it, it seems fairly obvious that we, like the disciples, want people to know how great we are. We secretly hope we will get the attention that we deserve. We want to be seen as important. We want people to think of us as talented or beautiful or smart or even humble, as ironic as that is. And I hope everyone knows how humble I am. I hope people know that I'm incredibly humble. So maybe a good test for this this morning would be think about how you responded The last time someone else got credit for something that you thought you deserved. Or the last time someone else was recognized for something that you want to be recognized for. The last time someone in your friend group said, do you know so-and-so? They're so wise. And in that split second, you think to yourself, I wish they'd said that about me. I want to be the wise one. or when our accomplishments are forgotten and other people's accomplishments are remembered. Like, you see how pervasive this is. And the temptation affects all of us. I know what it feels like after service for someone to share an amazing insight they gleaned from the book that they read that week when it's an insight I've mentioned from the pulpit five times over the last three years. (laughs) And in that split second, I wanna say, wait, I've, Or when someone I know and respect and really seek the approval of in some sort of probably ungodly sort of way decides even after visiting CCF for a while to make their home church somewhere else in our community. Or when another leader in our region is sought out for wisdom or counsel or sought out to speak on a topic that I think I'm actually good at. We all know what it's like in that split second to feel that... Now, it wouldn't seem like a sermon in Luke without a quote from our friend J.C. Ryle, the 19th century British pastor. So let me share this. This is a good one. He writes, the sin before us is a very old one. Ambition, self-esteem, self-conceit lie deep at the bottom of all men's hearts and often in the hearts where they are least suspected. Listen carefully to this next sentence. Thousands fancy that they are humble who cannot bear to see an equal more honored or favored than themselves. Few indeed can be found who rejoice heartily in a neighbor's promotion over their own heads. The quantity of envy and jealousy in the world is glaring proof of the prevalence of pride. Men would not envy a brother's advancement if they had not a secret thought that their own merit was greater than his. so we can see that this is a familiar dispute of the disciples, but we can also see how this is a natural pattern, isn't it? Which is our second point this morning. This is a familiar dispute of the disciples. This is not the first time they've been engaged in this kind of dispute, but this is a natural pattern. Like we know from our own lives how natural it is to want to be seen as great. And Jesus himself tells us so in verse 25. Look at verse 25. And Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. In other words, Jesus says to them, this is how the world, this is how unbelievers act. The world operates with a top-down philosophy. The greater your influence, the more people under your control, the greater you are. In fact, our pattern as humans, is to kind of rack and stack everybody's value based on how much power or authority they have over someone else. And this is what Jesus refers to with how the Gentile leaders exercise lordship over. It's not that authority is to blame. Godly authority, in fact, is a good thing. God's designed our world. He's designed our government and the church and the home with systems of authority and responsibility. But the danger is in using authority to bend others to do what we want them to do, to use authority for our own selfish purposes, or to somehow think that, that authority equals self-worth. And we value those with more authority as, as people with greater Worth value, and dignity, instead of seeing every single human life created by God someone with worth and value and dignity. The problem is we tend to think most highly of those who have more authority, don't we? It's in our changed disposition depending on someone's perceived level of authority or leadership or power. It's valuing of others based on their position. This is how the world defines greatness today, by money, prestige, authority, power. I mean, the, the people we want to emulate are successful businessmen and businesswomen and A-list movie stars and professional athletes. I mean, some of you have jerseys of your favorite team with a name on the back. I can guarantee you, well, maybe not, I don't know all of you. Most of you do not have the equipment manager's name on the back of your jersey, do you? <laughs> you have the celebrity, the superstar, the person with the perceived power, the, the person who, who admittedly can probably impact the game the most. That's not wrong. But it is wrong when we begin to evaluate people based on their power or their position or their authority. And we assign worth and value and dignity based on that, not based on the fact that all people are created in the image of God. Philip Ryken writes of a Harvard University MBA project. So the MBA students, one of their final projects was they were given this assignment. You need to write out, what do I hope to achieve in life after graduation? In that particular Harvard MBA class, the number one Priority that the class, most of the class, hoped to achieve in life after graduation was, you can probably guess it, wealth. Number two was notoriety. And number three was status. Not a single student mentioned a strategic plan about serving others. But Jesus has a totally different definition of greatness. In fact, after giving the world's definition of greatness, after after acknowledging this common pattern of, of humanity, he flips the script, which brings us to verse 26 in our third point this morning, which is a different mission. Verse 25, Jesus has just told them the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. Verse 26, but not so with you. You're not to be like that. Rather, which would be a great word to circle, rather let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Now before we get to what Jesus actually says here, I think it's important for us to notice what Jesus does here. First of all, Jesus does not hammer the disciples for their ridiculous argument and for their wrong thinking. Like Jesus does not do what I, and probably you would be tempted to do, like you, you knuckleheads. Like three years we've been together and we've walked together and I've taught you and you've seen things and you've, you've been around and you clearly should know by now that I am God the son and you are clearly not. And in fact, Peter, you're about to disown me. That's how frail and broken y'all are. And in the midst of right now, when I've just shared that I am going to surrender my life and give my blood for the new covenant, I'm going to suffer and die and rise again. And all the while, y'all are over there kind of bickering about who is the greatest. Thank God Jesus is not like me or like you. Jesus is patient with his stumbling followers. Even today. What amazing kindness. Especially considering how impatient we can be in our parenting. In our discipling. In our Christian living. Like I've told you a thousand times. And consider the patience of our Lord here. He is patient with his followers. He remembers, as Psalm 103 teaches us, that we are dust. I think that's amazing, an amazing kindness and grace of our Lord. But notice, Jesus doesn't just leave them there, He redirects the thinking of His disciples, and in so doing, He redirects our thinking as well. Again, look at verse 26. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. It's as though Jesus were telling them, "Like you, you want to be great. I know you're tempted to want to be great, and I know that this is this is the way that the world evaluates greatness. But this is not to be the case with you. If you are my follower." This is not for you. As for you, I'm calling you to something different. Let the greatest among you be like the youngest, and the leaders be the one who serves. Now, what should we make of this comment, let the greatest among you become as the youngest? I think think it's helpful for us to realize that in Jesus' day, youth was viewed differently than in our day. We're going to understand what Jesus is talking about here. So, in our day today, youth is idolized. We spend lots of time and lots of energy and lots of money, even as a culture, trying to look younger and dress younger and keep up with younger people and their thinking and doing. In fact, some research I did this week said that fashion and trends, in fashion trends, are primarily driven by those between 20 and 25. Like, Congratulations, y'all. Which means if you're 26, welcome to the club. Like, you're, you're a has-been, right? Older people in our day, I guess, which is anyone over 26, probably, are thought of as out of touch or without social value or not cool or whatever we, we might think as a culture. But in Jesus' day and in virtually every other culture, throughout human history, around the world, and even today, except for the last 100 years or so in the West, it was the older adults that were seen to be the ones that had the greatest source of wisdom and experience. They were the ones who were sought out for cultural thinking and trends. And so in Jesus' day, if you were young and you were at the table, you didn't speak unless you were invited to speak. You recognized That those around the table possessed greater wisdom, and so you you were humble in their presence. You would never presume to want to lecture or let everyone know all that you knew. I think Jesus's point here is if we are his followers, we should be marked by a humility that doesn't count others, or that doesn't count ourselves more important, more valuable than others. We're not prideful, we're not quick to. To brag or to promote ourselves. And so when Jesus says, you want to be my follower, he's saying your greatness will not come through power or position, but it will come through humility. Tom Schreiner writes, the greatest do not advertise their power or influence, but consider themselves to be like the youngest person. Like those at the bottom of the social ladder. In the same way, if we look at the second part of verse 26, the leader as one who serves. Our world says that leaders, to be a leader, you need to make things happen. You need to make people do what you want. Results-oriented leadership is how we evaluate what a true leader is and what a good leader is. But Jesus turns that. He says, if you want true greatness in the eyes of God, you need to be a leader who is first to serve. Which means more people under your leadership means more people that you get to serve. One commentator I read wrote about a missionary in Papua New Guinea uh, who was translating the New Testament into the, Itamuel, the, the language of the Itamil people, the Itamil tribesmen there in Papua New Guinea. It did not have the scriptures in a language they could understand, so this missionary is translating the New Testament. And when he came here to Luke 22, these verses that we're looking at this morning, he knew something about the, the Itamil society. and He knew that as the Itamil tribesmen rode in their canoes, the most important person sat in the middle of the canoe, The second most important person sat in the front and the least most important person sat at the very back doing most of the rowing. And so when he translated these verses, listen to how he translated it. If a person wishes to be a leader, he should not sit in the middle of the canoe. Let him sit at the stern. Let him do everyone's work. Have you ever... Thought in your mind or uttered with your mouth, getting taken advantage of. I'm doing everybody's work. No one appreciates what I do. Jesus says, Let the greatest among you become the youngest and the leader as one who serves. David Garland wrote, The disciples are interested in titles. Jesus offers them towels instead greatness is not determined by how many serve you, but how faithfully you serve those around you. And then Jesus says here in verse 27, for who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Clearly, it's the one who reclines at the table, culturally speaking, right? It's the ones who are seated. They have more value than the ones who serve. And tragically, if you've ever been a server in a restaurant, you know sometimes that's how humanity acts. We treat those who serve our table with disdain or like they're less important human beings. Jesus says, but I am among you as one who serves. It's interesting here in our verses this morning that all three occurrences of the English word serves is a translation from the Greek word diakonon, which means table service to wait and serve tables. It's in fact where we get the New Testament idea that exists even to today of deacons in the church. You're gonna hear more even about deacons here at CCF in the coming weeks this fall. But greatness is found in serving, not only because Jesus tells us so, but because Jesus has modeled that for us. I am among you as one who serves. Mark 10, I came not to be served, but to serve. If anyone had the right to be served. It was Jesus. And yet Jesus sets the example. It's like the old King and I movie, remember Rogers and Hammerstein? If you haven't, if you're under like 40, you probably don't even remember that at all. The king, you know, in the the culture of Siam, you know, the king's head had to be the highest in the room and so there's a scene where he keeps getting lower and lower and lower and everyone has to get lower and lower and lower. If Jesus Christ, is a servant, lowers himself, humbles himself to serve. He sets the pattern for us. I love the way Paul records this in Philippians chapter 2. You're familiar with this, but I want you just to follow along and look at these words and think of how this is is a direct application of Jesus' teaching here in Luke 22. Paul writes, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit... Any affection, any sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who... Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The ultimate picture of humility is Jesus, God the Son, second person of the Trinity, entering into our world To live without sin, although tempted. And to willingly sacrifice his life by dying on the cross. Taking the punishment for all who have sinned and trusted in him. And rising again from the dead, defeating sin and death so that any, even as Jeff prayed earlier, any, even today, who trust in Jesus Christ and turn away from unbelief, seek forgiveness and salvation in Jesus alone, might be forgiven, might receive cleansing, might receive new life, might receive an unmerited adoption through the mercy and grace of our Lord. When we want to see the picture of humility, we look at the cross. Again, Ryle writes, to know true greatness, look at Jesus. Jesus. He's great because who he is he's the second person of the Trinity, the only begotten son of God. Jesus always is, always has been, always will be very God of very God. He's not merely a man, but has every attribute of deity. Jesus Christ is the Lord God, which means there is no one greater than he is. Therefore, let us learn to take pleasure in the prosperity of others and to be content with the lowest places for ourselves. And here's the the glorious news this morning is that this kind of true greatness through humility is available to every Christian. Regardless of your background, regardless of how long you've been a Christian, regardless of if you know the books of the Bible in order or not, if you went to Bible college or not, this kind of true greatness through gospel humility, is available to every Christian because our pattern is Jesus Christ, our great Savior. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we... We admit and confess that so often we can become consumed with our own greatness. We see evidence of this in how angry we get when someone cuts us off in traffic or in line. Or how in a split second we can become angry or upset when someone else gets recognized for something we want to be recognized for. And in that split second, we feel the sting of our pride being hurt. Father, I first of all thank you for your grace that even in our shortcomings and failings, even as you demonstrate here in Luke 22, Father, you are gracious and compassionate you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love to us, your children. Father, thank you for that grace. Thank you for your long-suffering patience with us. Even when we fail again and again and again, and when we who are creatures in our clay want to elevate ourselves more highly than the creator and the potter, Father, forgive us. create in us clean hearts, oh God. So Father, we thank you for your grace. We also thank you for your Holy Spirit that helps us as we seek to put on true humility that flows from not only the teaching but the very life and witness and example of our Savior, Jesus Christ. May we be conformed into the image of your Holy Son, Father, we pray in this way. And by your grace, Father, I pray that that, might, that distinction from the world, that that would be compelling, that that would, that would testify to the authenticity of the gospel that we have believed and that you have given to us. And when people see us and and they watch, they would see lives of humility, lives of grace and love for others. So Father, help us in this regard. Give us grace when we fail. Give us strength. May we keep our eyes on you, the founder and perfecter of faith. We pray this, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, for his glory and for our joy. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how unscrutable his ways, for who has known the mind of the Lord, who's been his counselor, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever and ever. Amen.